All right, yet again, Village Church. Hope you guys are doing well. Welcome all of you who are new to Village. Uh, special welcome to you. If you're part of this family, uh, we have been growing, growing, growing. Um, Every week we kind of look at how many people are engaged online. And uh, man, right now it's like 30,000 people engaged in our services every week. So thank you, welcome, keep sharing it. We wanna get the message of Jesus out and what a cool opportunity this is when we're kind of a rapt audience right now. We wanna know what the big answers to the big questions are. And uh, man, we've been hitting a chapter in the Bible that addresses those. First Peter chapter one, and this will be the last sermon in this series called People in the Fire. And we've been talking about how are we gonna get through this fire? How are we gonna get through difficulty? How are we gonna get through this time of pressure and stress for all of us? And it really is a time of pressure and stress. And today, is a, is a pretty uh, practical one and, and, and a really um, a, a sermon that delves into something I, th I think we're all gonna need going forward, one we'll come back to because it's about the mental game that we're in the midst of right now and really is the difference between when our circumstances aren't changing day in and day out and I'm seeing that. It's like Groundhog Day, right? It's like every day is the same right now. There is no Saturday. There is no Tuesday. It's just like, it's day, all right? <laughs> you get up and you're like, it's the same thing. We're in our houses. We're doing Zoom meetings. We're whatever your context is. And here's what I'm seeing, okay? And this is what Peter addresses, the pressure, the stress, the mental, and he, and he, and he zones in on that. And, and really, I'm seeing that experientially because what I'm recognizing and there's, is, is I'm seeing like less posts about, oh, you know, my, because, you know, of course you love your husband, right? But he's home and around all the time now, all right? So I'm seeing less like feeling so blessed Hey, Moopy Poopy, I love you, Schmoopy Noopy. All right, I'm seeing kind of less of that and, uh, and more of like, like I, I was reading this Babylon Bee article, which is this Christian satire site. And there was the, the husband was laid out on the couch, like eating chips. And it was like, you know, good to have the husband home because now he can look around and say uh, how, you know, how to really run a house and, and what the wife's doing wrong and all that. So that's not my house, but it might be yours. So, you know, just fix it. Uh, and, then, and then, of course, we love our kids. But for many of you, it's like the kids are around all the time. And it's like, what am I going to do with them? I'm not a teacher. All the stress. All right. And the job stress and the, and the, and the strain and the emotional uh, wear and tear that's going on. And that's real. Um, let, me, let me just be vulnerable with you for a second. The whole honing in, if you haven't opened up your Bible, First Peter 1 is where we're going to be. And he says... Uh, in verse 13, and this is one of the crucial things on our way through this. Therefore, preparing your minds for action. So underline or double click or circle that word mind because the reality is, is that's what we're facing. Um, this is about a strong mental game, this sermon, but also the way through the fire. Uh, preparing your minds. This is what he hones in on. It's fascinating um, because I, I just, you know, if I'm just honest with you, um, I am someone who, since, I, as I've talked about in the last few weeks, um, like many of you, I'm, I'm with you, all right? I, I struggle with mental health myself, uh, having Tourette's and tics that, that go crazy at times of stress. And I'm seeing that in myself at my house. All right, my tics are going crazy. My uh, one daughter who has actually a ticks herself, her ticks are going crazy because there is this pressure and stress under the surface of what we're all dealing with, if we're honest. 
And I'm not someone like, like I'm, I, I, we have a church and, and part of the whole reason I ever got called to ministry was to gather. And as much as I joke about not being a pastor and not liking people, I actually got into this because I love you. And I love gathering with you. And I love preaching and teaching with you and worshiping with you and hugging you and loving on you. And that can't happen. And that is a stress and it's weird. And, and I, don't, I don't know where that goes because even when we're all allowed out of our houses and we're allowed to go to restaurants maybe a little bit or allowed to go to, you know, go to social gatherings more, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to say, okay, now you can gather in churches because it might be the 200 people in under rule or something that goes on for a while. So when will we gather again as a church? Do you know that that's, that stresses me out. Is, is that six months from now? Is that a year from now? Uh, how long until we can actually be a church physically again at certain locations? Now, of course, those of you who are online, amazing. And this is our new reality and it's beautiful. And we're going to be on mission and give and serve in those contexts. But ultimately, the, the physical gatherings is a thing. And so we want that to happen. And I'm stressed and strained that it's not happening. Um, it, it's part of what I desire to happen. So my point is, is that I'm not some person who's in a perfect scenario just telling you what to do with your life. I'm in this with you. We're in this together. My wife and I were driving uh, to go... Uh, hand out some flyers to be able to bring some, uh, some food packs around to uh, the, the less fortunate in one of our cities. And, uh, and as we were driving there, she was telling me that she has had trouble sleeping um, night after night after night. And we were talking about why that is. And it's just the strain and the stress of everything that's going on. And so my family's not perfect. All right, we were hanging out with friends the other day and all of a sudden we, Aaron and I realized we were in the middle of a, of a marriage counseling session. All right, and it's like, no, but you said this. I'm like, but that's not what I meant. And like, what do you say and what you mean are two different things. And what about love? What about respect? Yeah, what about, you know, all of that. And all of a sudden it's like, boom, thank you for being our marriage counselors. And we go home and hugged it out. And so the reality is, this is all of us. This is me too. All right, so I'm coming at you as a fellow soldier in the fight in the midst of this. And, it, and, and that is the metaphor. This is a battle right now, right? This is a fight. But the fight is not, as John Stott years ago said in a, in a commentary on the book of Revelation, when, when Jesus is speaking to the churches and he says, you know, you got to have your minds focused. John Stott made the point as he said, this isn't a battle of your physicality. This is a battle of ideas, this is a battle of your mind. It's not bullets, or as Churchill said, this is about the empire of the mind is where uh, all the empires that physical geographical locations will crumble and then will be a discussion of fighting of the empires of the mind. And so the reality is we're in a mind game. We're in a mental game right now to be, and I want you to be as healthy as possible in regard to your mind. So I'm gonna get super practical in a minute around how to do that. Um, and, uh, but, but, but first, let me just talk to the skeptic. So I think there's two in regard to this text. He says, therefore, um, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. So he's saying that this is, Christianity is actually about using your mind. Now, over the years, I can see why agnostics and atheists and skeptics actually look into Christians and go, oh, you don't use your minds because Christians have kind of done a really good job at making Christianity just about sentimentalism, right? It's just like how I feel and my emotions and it's not really 
you know, people who think. That tends to be the, it's like we love the, you know, I was, I was reading this worship song recently. I won't mention which one it is because I don't want any emails. But it was talking about how God, you know, looks at me and he dances with me and he dips me. And it's kind of like, look, God is not your boyfriend who takes you to the prom. That's not what Christianity is about. Here, Peter's going, preparing your minds. You got to think. Now, if you're an agnostic and you're an atheist and you're a skeptic and you think, no, 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 I'm smart. Ergo, I'm not a Christian, or ergo, I don't believe in God. That's actually the, the, the opposite. Uh, now, now, here's what I mean, the opposite of reality. Here's what I mean. I had a lot of friends growing up uh, that didn't believe in God, and I didn't believe in God growing up. No Bible, no church, or anything. Um, but they believed in morality. And so they would say, so maybe you're someone who says you don't believe in God, and you like to use your mind versus faith. And that's kind of the dichotomy you've created. But the reality is this. For instance, do you believe racism is wrong? Probably. You probably believe intolerance is, is wrong. But the question is, where did you actually get that premise? So you might believe racism is wrong, but you think that um, sexually you can kind of do whatever you want. So here's the problem with that. From a logical standpoint, if we want to use our minds, based on what do you make that distinction? about I can do sexually this, but I, racism is this, or torture is wrong all the time. But who told you that? Now, when I was an atheist, I'd say, well, uh, just everybody knows that racism is wrong. But that's not actually a good philosophical reason to believe it because there's lots of cultures who would believe, hey, this race is bad, let's put them in a gas chamber. You don't want to define your morality by popular vote. There's lots of people who believed in slavery in the past. You need actually something else, some firm foundation to believe in moral structures and believe one thing and the other. So I would say that believing in God, believing in Christianity is, is, the, is not the leap of faith. The leap of faith is saying, I believe racism is wrong, but I have no foundation to believe it. I have no reason to, uh, to, to believe that human beings are different than rocks. I have no, there is no meaning of life ultimately. There is just this cold vastness and yet I have a moral compass. Based on what distinction do you do this? And so the Bible comes along and goes, well, there are distinctions. In Romans chapter 10, Paul's writing to these Christians. And this is a good word for Christians now. He says uh, in Romans 10, he says, for I bear them witness that they have zeal, which is nice, but without knowledge. So he's saying there's a whole bunch of Christians that are zealous, all right? They're hot, but there's no light. Meaning they're just not thinking. And so what he's saying is you got to prepare your minds. Christianity is not just about emotions. We planted a church to reach people who think because we believe that Christianity is the best idea in the marketplace of ideas and that it actually makes sense. Now there's lots of people who go, yeah, but I'm a rational person and, uh, and, and there's faith over here and there's rational people over here. You know, uh, years ago, one writer that I read made a very uh, good analogy about this. And he said this. He said, if you had to go to the doctor and, uh, and you said, I, you know, I got to go to this doctor and I got to make sure that this doctor is really good at the surgery that I need. And you went and researched her and you talked to all your friends and yep, she's a great doctor, great doctor. Okay. And you did all the research. You did all the rational thinking you could. And it brought you to the day of the surgery and you got to the hospital and you're like, hey, I got to go to the, and then you're like, I don't know. And you banked out and you ran away. Why would you be doing that? Well, it's not because you're actually rationally thinking through it. See, in that moment, you've stopped being rational and you've started trusting your emotions. You started trusting your gut. You started going, oh, I don't really, I'm not trusting the data. And that's what I think happens when people don't believe in God. I don't think the leap of faith is actually believing in God. I think it's not believing in God. And this is what Peter's saying. He says, you got to use your mind. And if the evidence shows you that it actually makes sense of morality, it makes sense of the structure, then what's the reason you're running away? 
It's not based on the data. It's because your gut, it's the thing behind the thing. It's you don't want someone to rule you. Or you don't want someone to tell you about this sexuality or money or whatever. And the reality is, Peter's saying, it's important for us to follow our minds in all things. That it's unbelief that is the thing that is the absence of thinking. Now, there's another level to preparing your minds. Now we're focused on the away from the skeptic for a second. And now toward all of us who might believe in God already, but we're in the midst of the fire, we're feeling the squeeze and we're like, how are we gonna have a good mental game? Now, preparing your minds, this is how powerful the mind is. There's a story, I've told this before, about a guy named uh, uh, Vance Vanders, all right? And it's, it's told in this um, book that I read called um, uh, The God-Shaped Brain. And what it says right off the bat is that Vanders shows up at the hospital and he's deathly ill and the doctors don't know what to do. They don't know how to deal with him. And he's like two days to death. Like he won't eat, he can't keep anything, you know, whatever. And nobody knows why. And a day or two before he dies, he's just gone down road in the last week. Uh, the doctor, uh, one of his family members comes up and says, hey, listen, um, the other day in a, in a cemetery somewhere, he bumped into a witch doctor and the witch doctor put a curse on him and said, you know, there's this, uh, this is the, cur you know, you're, I'm going to curse you and you're going to die. And, uh, and so he's been downhill since then. So the doctor had an idea. It's a true story. The doctor waited a day and he came back in and he had this, uh, he had this bag and the bag had like a frog in it. And he called the family and he said, listen, I, he lied. He said, I went to the cemetery and I found this witch doctor and I put him up against a tree and I told him, you better tell me what you curse you put on this guy. And uh, he said, okay, and he told me the curse and I know what to do. He's put this frog in your stomach and uh, I'm gonna go get it out. And he hid the frog and he took a needle and he put it into Vander's and it was a needle that makes you throw up. And uh, so he, he puts the needle in and he starts to pretend to open him up and he pulls out this bag with the frog and he said, look, I got it. And then Vander starts to throw up and he said, don't worry about it, it's all taken care of. And two days later, Vander's was totally fine. Three days later, he walks out of the hospital. What is that? That's the power of the brain, guys. That's the power of the mind. A guy convinced himself he was sick and psychologically we know this is true. It's the power of the brain and the mind to do so many things. And right now, listen, I was watching uh, Saving Private Ryan uh, yesterday and there's, listen, there is always this scene in that movie that makes me actually like convulsingly cry. And on the surface, you don't really think about it. But literally, even last night, I was like, <laughs> I gotta pull it together, I gotta preach. All right. And literally the scene is, it's a, it's a funny scene to cry at, but when you see it all in context, all the soldiers, they don't know what their captain does for a living back home, uh, Tom Hanks. They don't know what he does and they're, um, they're fighting. And so they all start to turn on each other and they've got guns at each other. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. They're screaming at each other and they've been betting behind the closed doors on what he does for a living. And he knows it, but he, he's never shown it. And they're all like, it. and so they're fighting and fighting, about to kill each other. And finally he just cuts in and he goes, hey, what's the bid on, uh, uh, up to now on me, on what I do for a living? Hey, and they all kind of stop fighting and they look at him. He's like, what, what? And he's like, what, what, what is it? I'm a school teacher in a small town in where I live in Pennsylvania, I teach English composition at Lincoln Elementary. And all of a sudden there's dead silence. And he goes, man, back home, people ask me what I do. It's no big deal, but here. And for a moment, he takes them out of this. These guys have been in war for years 
And they have started, listen, they have started to believe that this is the only reality. They have started to construct and, and be fearful and freak out and have a psychology that's getting warped by the reality of war. And he needs to level them out of it. He needs to take them out of it and remind them of something else, that there's a real world out there that we need to get back to. And honestly, I think why I was weeping because I was thinking about it for you in the context of you have started to think that this is the new normal. And here, this is one of the reasons the Lord put this chapter on my heart to speak into such a moment as this. You have started to believe that this anxiety and this fear and this construct that we're sitting in in the present is all there is. And what you need is God to lift you out of it and remind you there's a real world, there's a kingdom there's a, there's, a, there's a real king. There's, there's beautiful work to be done. There is hope. And this is what the hope is. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, right? It's the idea that I, I asked, um, we have a, a, a clinical psychologist on staff, Dr. Josh Cruz. And I said, if you wanted to tell people three practical things of how to good, have a good mental game right now to be able to prepare their minds, what would you tell them? And he said, these three things. You can write them down, take them. You need to focus on three things. First, your emotions. He says you need to slow down, acknowledge difficulties and emotions, mental, physical rest, take stock, grieve losses, work on accepting reality, right? Some of you, let me tell you why you're stressed right now. You're stressed partly because you're a control freak, all right? You, you ha- there's, a, there's an arrogance, there's a pride in you that makes you want to control everything and everyone and every scenario, and part of your actual mental, emotional game needs to be to actually release those things that you're not the one in control. Secondly, he says, your thought life, right? It's, it's Philippians 4, it's think on these things, whatever's good, whatever's holy, whatever's blameless, think on these things. You gotta think on not the negative things, but the positive things, the, 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 the uplifting, motivating, the promises of God versus all the latest COVID news, all the rest of it. That's how you're actually gonna get through this. See, um, I was listening to my, my buddy who was, uh, his name's Jason Kane. He's a preacher down in California. I was listening to him today and he was talking about the idea that in the New Testament, what happened when they were suffering was the obstacles didn't change, but their perspective changed and that's how they got through it. So tomorrow, the obstacles might not change for you. But the, but the reality is what needs to shift is your perspective in the midst of the obstacles. And once your perspective, it's like this, I got a, uh, I got a phone call. Okay, one o'clock in the morning one day from my, my buddy, he was fighting with his wife and he called me up and he's just like, dude, it's crazy. It's over. I can't believe it. Like th- this is brutal, blah, blah, blah. And I said, what are you talking about? What's the problem? And he starts to say, she's crazy. It's the craziest thing ever. You're not even going to believe it. No one's ever going to believe it. I said, what is it? And he goes, do you know this woman keeps um, like birthday gifts, like, like, like five or six deep in the car just in case some lady from school wants to have a birthday party and my daughter's gonna get invited to it. Do you know how crazy that is? Like, dude, what is reality right now? Just starts losing his brain. And I said, dude, my wife does that. He's like, what? And I go, actually, a lot of the ladies that I know in my town, they do that. It's actually super smart. And all of a sudden, listen to me, his nothing changed, but everything changed. The only thing that shifted was his perspective. He got new information that allowed him to go, my gosh, the obstacle hasn't moved. All reality is the same. And yet what I think about it has changed. 
That's the strength of the mental game right now. This is the challenge. Prepare your minds. And some of us just have weak minds. We can't do the discipline that we need to do. So your emotions, your thoughts, and then lastly, uh, Josh said, our behaviors and our actions. We got to go forward. He said, step forward, faith, obedience, not necessarily because you feel it, but because it's the right thing to do. And this is what the text talks about, being sober-minded. Having a sharp mind and thinking through things is, is more important right now than just having sharp emotions because as Dallas Willard once says, listen, feelings are good servants, but disastrous masters, right? Feelings are, they're good servants. They serve you well. They're gonna tell you, look, there's a tiger, there's danger, run, be scared. That's good, but they're terrible masters because they will destroy you. They'll take you down. I did a, uh, my first Zoom wedding the other day. And I'm sitting there with this couple and they're like loving each other, man. They're 21 and just fresh, new to the world. And I'm doing it. And, and I've, I've talked to you guys, if you've been to Village before, about the idea that, you know, every time I do these weddings, I just want to fast forward, you know, 10 years and just be like, man, it's one thing to be in love and have all your feelings and your butterflies up and kicking right now at this wedding day. But you're going to be tempted as you go through life and be very careful if how you feel in a given moment is the hermeneutic out of which you, or the, the power center out of which you live. Be very careful if that's the way you make decisions because maybe your wife and you are fighting, but that girl over there, she bats her little eyelashes at you and all of a sudden your heart starts to flutter. Be careful how you feel, man. It can derail your life. And so how you feel in this moment, listen, it's gonna pass. What's the other passage we're using for this, for this series? Let not your hearts be troubled, John 14. This is Jesus to you, right? And so what's the next thing he hits? How are you gonna have a good mind game? How are you gonna have a good sober mental game? Set your hope, he says this, look at the rest of verse 13. Fully on the grace that will be brought to you, when? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, here's, here's a fascinating thing. So a lot of people today are like, is it the end times? Is it the end of the world? Look, I don't know. Jesus could come back 3,000 years from now or in 30 seconds from now. The reality is, it's really important that your hope is, is fronted not only in the, the, the idea that God became a human and died on a cross and rose again for your salvation, but that he's also coming again. This is a key part of the gospel. And what it does is it says, now you can change, you can do anything with your life if your whole hope is that Jesus is coming back again, right? This is why in John 14, he says, believe in God, believe it also in me. I'm going to prepare a place for you and then I'm gonna come back. See, here's what it says. It says, and I know kind of end time teaching has been hijacked by weirdos and that's why we don't tend to talk about it a lot, right? Because you get like, Jesus Christ is coming back. So send me 40 bucks to help me with my private jet because Jesus doesn't want me to run around in commercial jet right? or whatever. You think that is like a thing. So then the church doesn't talk about this. But in fact, we need to be talking about it because what it says is that the end of all things is Jesus coming back, meaning there is a, there's a telos, there's, a, there's an end, there's a climax to all of history. And if you don't have a climax to history, then what are we doing right now? Everything you're doing is going nowhere. But he's saying, you know how you're gonna have a good mental game? You're gonna have the hope 
that there's a story being written that has an ending. And the ending is that King Jesus, the one you trust in, is coming back to get his people and create a new heaven and a new earth. Here and here, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, I was reading him the other day, and he said, you know, I'm getting to the place. And he was preaching in the 40s and the 50s. And he said, I'm getting to the place where now I, I'm starting to less ask people when I'm trying to de delineate whether someone's a Christian or not. He said, I'm going less to the question of what do you believe about Jesus' nature and what do you think about, you know, uh, uh, um, exclusivity and all these different things that we go to. And he says, I've started to look at them and say, here's the quickest way for me to figure out whether someone has a Christian worldview. What does the end of all things look like? What, what are we doing right now? Where is your life going? What is your forecast for the future? And there's delineations all through because, of course, the secular story, the evolutionary story is what? It's that we're all getting better. Technology is going to solve us. Science is going to solve us. Everything's getting better in the world. It's fascinating that we've concluded that at the end of a century where we saw 100, 150 million people. I'm listening to a book right now called The Story of World War II. It's fascinating uh, by Donald L. M L. Miller. And he's talking about the ideas of how many millions of people died. And you're listening to all of these, you know, 20 million Russians and 6 million Jews and this many Polish and all these millions of men dead, 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 dead. And at the end of that century, we decide as a culture that there's no such thing as evil. At the end of a moment... So we can have this worldview that says well, everything's getting better. We're going to solve all of our problems. Don't you know we're, we're developing and everything's going to be fine. That can be a worldview. That's not the Bible's. The Bible's is a little bit more pessimistic. It says, man, things are going to get worse before they get better. Yes, the kingdom is coming. And God, bring your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But... Jesus says there's this parable. He talks about the wheat and the weeds. And there's wheat, beautiful wheat. And then there's weeds growing among the wheat. And the person comes into the master and says, should we cut down the weeds? And he says, no, let the weeds and the wheat grow together. There's a kingdom of darkness. There's a kingdom of light right now. It's happening. You can't deny it. Human beings are a wreck. They're sinful. This is why Jesus Christ came to solve, you know, the idea that two human beings will fight. As long as two human beings will fight, nations will fight. There will be wars and rumors of wars. The biblical view on things is somewhat pessimistic in the sense of it's, it recognizes human nature. It doesn't pretend that we're great people and everything's just going to get better. It says, yeah, there's going to be some tough stuff that goes down. There's going to be some things. See, this is the Christian perspective on it. And it's being able to go, okay, in the midst of having a Christian perspective on it, if Jesus is coming back, I can live in boldness. Listen, guys, if you're just, pay attention. If Jesus is coming back, hey, a 15-year-old kid who's sitting there on his phone and his couch right now and hasn't been listening for the last 10 minutes. Listen, if Jesus is coming back, then you can live with boldness. If Jesus is the one you trust and he wins in the end, and he comes back to reign and rule, you can give your life for this. Jesus didn't die to pass you a dull habit. He died so that you would give your life loving and serving him to your last breath. This is, an, this is anything but boring, church. This is everything where your king has given you an assignment in the present and the question is, do we actually pull it off or not? World War II, here's what Martin Lloyd-Jones said. 
during World War II where bombs are dropping and people are throwing nuclear bombs to end the war. Here's what Lloyd-Jones said from his pulpit. If I have not wakened to the fact that my soul and my relationship with God are infinitely more important than the possibility that my body may be destroyed by an atomic bomb, then I have not started to be a Christian. Sub in. If I have not come to the fact that my soul and my relationship with God are infinitely more important than the possibility that my body may be destroyed by a virus, by poverty, by job loss, then I have not started to be a Christian because my hope is not in the thing that transcends all that stuff. It's in this life still. And this is what this is trying to wake us up out of. Hey, what's the thing up to me on? I'm a teacher. I, I teach English composition. Jesus is coming back. Wake up. You got, you're living here. There's a reality behind the veil and it's real and it defines everything. So he says this. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then verse 14, as obedient children. Now that might sound like an oxymoron to you, right? Obedient children. Does it, especially having all the kids home. It's like, I am very aware that obedient children is kind of a crazy thing. I was uh, given our, uh, uh, we, we were doing a spelling test the other day and uh, we, we gave my daughter like this crazy word. I forget what it was, incessantly or uh, impeccability or some crazy. And, uh, and she just looked at us at one point and she's like, um, okay. Uh, and she, she writes for a sec. We're like, like, are you done? She's like, um, I, got a, I got a few options here for you. Right, that's how she laid it down. These kids, I mean, you know, obedient and child don't tend to go together. Uh, you've been over to people's houses and seen. See, here's one thing I hate, and I love your kids, and I'm not thinking of anyone I know, okay? But hypothetically speaking, I hate whiny kids, all right? I'm just, I'm just gonna just whine. You know what I'm talking about. You go over, you're sitting with your friends, and that kid's just a whine face, just just whine, whine, whine about everything. And you just want to take the kid in the room and go, listen, hey, dude, what are you doing with your life? And they're like, meh, right? That is literally what I feel like doing sometimes with kids because whine, whine, whine. I don't want to do what my parents want me to do. Here's the concept that Peter just laid down. He says, you want to know what the paradigm of your Christian life is? It's that you're a child. You have a good father but sometimes you're a whiner. What do you mean? Well, you can be an obedient child. That's what's going to bring you hope. Being obedient. Disobedient, you're going to have the stress. The mental game's not going to be strong. Well, what does that look like? What do you mean? Well, God goes, okay, sexually. You don't get to sleep with whoever you want. You got to be married, man, woman, in the context of marriage. Then go nuts. Until then, Discipline. We go, meh, I want to do it my way. Meh. God goes, hey, here's how I want you to do money. I want you to get it. I don't want you to, def to define you. I want you to be generous with it. I want you to make sure that you love the church, love missionaries, give it away. Meh, I want to build a bigger house. I want to, you sound like a whiny kid. All right, hey, I don't want you to gossip because you're going to destroy people's lives. Don't just sit around and feel better about yourself by talking negatively about other people because you're so insecure that you got to rant, 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 rant. 
but I like it. It feels good when I do it because then I feel better about myself. Yeah. See, all, see what that is? You know when you're sinning, you're like a whiny kid. And G, Peter goes, you want to know the way to be mentally healthy? It's being an obedient child. When you're actually saying to yourself, man, I actually, I actually love Jesus and I'm being obedient to him. This is why down in verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience. You, you want to know how to, to get peace in your life? It's through righteousness. This is why he goes on. He says, uh, look at the rest of the verse, verse 15. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. It's actually us going, man, holiness is what's going to produce a good mental game in me. Being righteous is actually the way to flourish. And oftentimes in our lives, we don't actually think that way at all. See, when he's talking about holiness, he's not talking about rules. Sometimes we hear the word holiness. We're like, well, they, that means, see, this is all religion. It's a bunch of rules that are going to come into my life and a bunch of bad things, you know, a bunch of things God's going to make me do that I don't want to do. That's not what he means. You know what the word holy means? The word holy means uh, to, to, to cut out. It's like you're going through a bunch of papers and you need to cut out a section in order to use it later, like set apart. This is what the text says. It says um, you actually need to be, to be, to be cut out to be used for God. That's the point. You want to flourish mentally. You want to understand how to be used in your life to do something that you're going to flourish in. It's when you're set apart for God and not yourself. Now, here's what I mean. You get cut out and set aside. It's not just about rules. It's, it's this image. Uh, some of you will know who Jim Elliott is. Jim Elliott was a missionary in the 1950s. Him and a group of people wanted to go to a lost tribe in the midst of Ecuador, okay? And they wanted to tell people about Jesus in this lost tribe. They, wa they wanted to give them the hope of Christ. And people said, it's dangerous. They haven't seen Westerners before. Don't do it. And he said, but I want to tell them about Jesus. And so the night before they went in, uh, actually, they all got speared and killed uh, by the people in the, in the, in, on the island. But the night before they went in and got killed, they sang this hymn. And the hymn uh, has these great lyrics to it. It says this, listen to this. We rest on thee, our shield and our defender. We go not forth alone against the foe. Strong in thy strength, safe in thy keeping tender. We rest on thee and in thy name we go. So, so we rest on thee, you're our shield, you're our defender. Um, then they go in the next day, check this, and they get killed. So here's the question. The hymn didn't work. The Bible doesn't work. I thought when I read the Psalms, he's my defender. I thought he's the one who protects me. I thought he's the refuge. I thought he's the shield. I thought there were all these passages that told me that life was going to go good for me, but the next day, I go and I got speared to death. What's up? It's because holiness doesn't mean you're not going to die. It means your life's been set apart for God to do what he wants to do with it instead of what you want to do with it. And once that shift takes place, Listen to how this whole chapter ends. 
Verse 24, all flesh is like grass, all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Do you know how vulnerable your life is? One minute the grass is there and boom, wind comes gone. That's your life. That's my life. Dudes, I'm almost 40. Almost 40. Do you know that when I play golf now, I actually have to take a whole bunch of Advil because my shoulder kills. All right? I, I feel like I'm 100 years old. My body is failing. And as I heard one person illustrate one time, he said, if I held up a picture right now of your great-grandfather, I don't know if I, he was in a group whether you'd be able to pick him out. Think about that right now on your couches as you're sitting there. Would you, if I held up a picture of your, of your great-grandfather in the, in, a, in the midst of people, would you be able to go, that's him right there? Probably not, to be honest. Okay, so if that's true, and that's your blood, that's you in a generation. That's how vulnerable your life is. You are a piece of grass and it doesn't, we're all gonna go in different ways. And I, but the hope is that you put your faith in Jesus because life is so vulnerable. And that's what gets you up in the morning. That's what gets your mental game to be sharp because your whole identity is rooted in something that transcends the realities that we face every day of our lives. I'm not mine anymore. I am yours. I've been cut out and set apart for your purpose, not my purpose. Now, let me end this series um, by reading you a blessing, and then we're gonna sing the blessing. Uh, Seth and Shai are gonna actually sing, sing it over you. And in order to do that, I wanna do something different. All right, so I know I'm not trying to be weird. I'm not trying to weird you out, but I want all of you to stand up. I, I know sometimes worshiping together in our houses with our families, we don't tend to like stand up and, and get into it because it's kind of like, hey, you know, and you're, you know, your kid's like, what are you doing? All right, so I get it, but I want everyone to stand up, okay? I know dad who's too cool and you're chilled back and you got your coffee, whatever. Look, just stand up, okay? Just, just work with me here. I want the whole family standing in your house right now as I, as I read you this text over you and then I want you to stay standing for this song that we're going to sing because it's a song of worship, but it's also a song that, that we want to sing over you as a blessing, to your family and your church, your family and us as a church, as a church family, but also you in the microcosm of your family. And what does it look like for you to be blessed and your children to be blessed and your children's children? And so it comes from an old Jewish blessing from Numbers chapter six, we're at the end of it. And I had this amazing prof. I remember when I was uh, in Bible college, my first day I'd shifted away from doing all the, remember I was telling you about the writing and the Titanic and the film industry. And then I went to my first day of Bible class and I was like, am I supposed to be here? Uh, kind of like, I'm anxious, I'm nervous. I don't know what the future holds. I don't know where I'm gonna go in my life. I don't know if I should be here. And I remember the first class I ever walked into the guy got up at the end, of the, uh, the end of his teaching and he said, I want all of you to stand and I want to say a blessing over you. And he said it every day over us that we we're in class. And it used to calm me and center me to let me know where I was supposed to be. And it's what this song we're about to sing is based on. Numbers chapter six. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, 
speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, Now this is over you. So just receive this for the next seven, eight minutes in your homes. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Peace.